0: Forever! Dog!
1: Hey everyone, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Thanks for listening. Um, It's fall. Oh boy, what a fun year it's been, right? Um, I thought I would give a little update because I think my last one was real grim. The good news is nothing's getting better. Um, This is still very much the worst year um, that many of us can remember and and if you 've been listening to the writers' panel episodes these past six months six to eighteen months, um you will hear that sentiment being expressed over and over again, and I guess the good news is that you're not alone uh it feels impossible right now uh people who should be working are not working, people who are trying to break in It feels like it's dire it feels like there's no hope that's not true. There is always hope. I do genuinely believe that the biggest asset you can have in this business, whether you've broken in or whether you know you are continuing to break in or whether you are just sort of hoping to ride out this current situation, um, whatever that is, is tenacity. Uh, tenacity and talent will out. Um, on top of that, be a good person. If people like you, they're going to want to hire you. Do the work, be nice, and hang in there is kind of what it comes down to. I genuinely believe that's true. It's been an insane few years. Like We keep coming back to talking about how right now it is the worst it's ever been, and that's true, but things have been abnormal since at least 2019 when uh, we had the agency campaign, which was absolutely the right thing to do. And I think we were proven out that it was the right thing to do. But, you know, we had a year without agents or over a year without agents. And then we had a pandemic and then we still have a pandemic. Uh, And then we have a bunch of new streamers who, you know, are figuring themselves out along with the existing streamers who are figuring themselves out in a new landscape. Um, All of that creates uncertainty. And that's a tough marketplace. It's a tough marketplace to sell anything in. And it's a tough marketplace to try to get staffed in. I'm thrilled that people are getting staffed. I'm thrilled that people are selling shows. Uh, it really makes me so happy to see someone getting their first staffing job on a show uh, when I see that stuff pop up on Twitter. So let me know when that's you. You know, um, It really makes me feel good that people are getting their breaks. Um, and there's no reason that couldn't be you. Uh, keep at it. That's what we can do. Uh, it's going to be a quiet couple of months. Uh, I do believe that. Uh, there's always a flurry of activity at the end of the year. I'm sure this year will be no different, um, but it will also be wildly different. You know, it's it's such uncertain times. Um, but I think, you know, it's going to be quiet these next couple months and it's going to be difficult to get anything off the ground. So work on your scripts. That's the best thing you can do through early next year. Work on your scripts, get your stuff done. It's what I'm trying to do. You know, we're out with a couple of pitches and we would love for someone to pick them up. Hey, if you're a buyer and you want to make a movie or TV show, let me know. We have stuff. Um, But mostly, you know, we're getting excited about working on new things. Um, We just keep churning out material because... It seems like the best thing you can do, right? It's, it's the only thing you can control. And then, you know, you worry about the market later. Um, write the thing that you think no one wants to see. I think on a recent episode, we sort of had that conversation that, you know, the shows we were talking about were shows that nobody wanted for years uh, and that the writer's representative said, don't write this. I can't sell it. Well, that's the thing to write now. Uh, nobody, nobody's interested in a down the middle softball. I'm sure some people are, but it's, you know, it's hard to get excited about that stuff. Write the thing you love, write the thing you want to do, write the thing that is your voice, write the thing that only you can write and then take stuff in, read stuff, read books, read novels, um, watch TV, watch the weird stuff, watch the stuff that everyone's talking about, watch the stuff that no one's talking about. Just get more input, fuel for the fire. Um, you know, that's why we ask at the end of every episode what everyone's watching on TV these days, because that stuff, you know, is input. Anyway, uh, I thank you for your continued listenership. Um, do me a favor, please follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. And let's talk about writing. It's I love doing it. I still love doing this show. I think we're up to 500 official episodes and we're actually well over 500 episodes unofficially. And if you do like the show, please do me a favor, leave a review on iTunes. It's really helpful for getting advertisers, which is the only way we can keep the show going. There's a lot of work involved with the show, especially because we can't go to the studio anymore. uh, And we're just doing this over various uh, interfacing platforms. So we we do need to pay engineers and stuff like that. So go leave a review on iTunes, please. That was really helpful. Um, keep listening. We have some cool stuff coming up. And as always, let me know on Twitter or on Facebook what shows you're watching and who else we should get for the podcast. I'm always looking for great new material to watch and great new writers to talk to. Until that's you. Yeah, that could be you. Come on. I love when I get new writers on the podcast and they say they've been listening to the show for, you know, five years. That is incredibly flattering and makes it feel worthwhile. So thanks. Come on the show. Go sell a show and then come on this show. All right. Uh, enjoy this episode. It's a good one. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, tonight, tonight or whenever the time is right. It's the writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves on microphones and tell the listener where they may have seen your name on their television screen now or in the past. And Courtney, let's start with you.
0: Hi, I'm Courtney Kang. You might have seen my name on the credits for How I Met Your Mother. I was there for nine years, or Fresh Off the Boat, or I just recently created the new Doogie Houser reboot called Doogie Kame Aloha that's streaming on uh, disney plus and i'm also a feature writer and i have a bunch of projects in development just about to go or they keep knocking on death's doorstep but they keep on going so yeah that's it
1: doogie is so great i hope that folks who haven't checked it out will check it out right now in fact stop what you're doing go
2: watch it then come back and listen to this (laughs) john please tell us who you are and where we may have seen your name before Sure. I'm John Hoffman. I, like Fortney, was a feature writer for many years and still am with those various things still out there, waiting for thumbs up, or thumbs down. And got into television. You may have seen my name on credits for Looking on HBO or Grayson Frankie for 75 seasons. No, six seasons. And And I just recently ridiculously co-created a show on hulu with steve martin which i'm the showrunner for uh, only murders in the building and i
1: love only murders in the building so we have a lot to i have a lot of questions Meg. how are you who are you tell us about yourself
3: i am mega z Pensineau. i am currently co-ep on reservation dogs and you may have seen me or probably not if you haven't seen me sleep on uh bark skins two sentence horror stories and then not credited on a whole bunch of other stuff and then you know credited on a bunch of stuff that nobody (laughs) and like everybody else a million things that are possibly going possibly not you know
1: yeah that's something I kind of want to talk about in a minute and again like I've I've told the other two how much I love their show. Reservation dogs is so great. Folks should be checking it out. I think they are like it's wildly popular, which I'm very excited about. Get out there if you haven't seen it. Like, this is one of the first episodes I've done in a while where I love everybody's work so much. And it's all, like, current in my brain, too. So thank you. I want to start by talking about that current work. And, you know, we're looking at three sort of wildly different um, series but I think they do have commonalities. And I think part of the commonality is these are stories that could only be told now in the way that they're being told, which is both good and bad. Like they should have been able to be told 20 years ago, but they weren't. So let's talk about why now for these stories, it's always like the worst question you get in development, but I'm actually curious to talk about like, why is this the right time to bring back doogie for example and why is this the right milieu for the remake so courtney let's start with you and then we'll talk to uh, everyone else
0: i don't know that there ever is you know a right time the thing that's exciting for me is i grew up watching doogie hauser with neil patrick harris and you know when i started in the business a thousand years ago you always only wrote for white people. And, you know, my dad is Korean. I was born in white. My mom's very much like the family in the show. And I remember it was never a question of, it was always just like every script I wrote was all white people. And it wasn't even a decision that was made. It was sort of understood. That's what you would do. And so I think the why now of it is it's exciting that now, Things are starting to change in that way. Like, even when I was on Fresh Off the Boat, I remember it was, we were working, it was season one of Fresh Off the Boat. We hadn't aired yet. And I wanted to do a show about my family. And everybody was like, well, there's Fresh Off the Boat. So if it works, there is one. And if it doesn't work, then that's not going to work. And that was the thinking across the board that everybody had. And even at the time, I was like, I got that. Like, that made sense to me because I understood how business works, even though I still thought it's bananas. You know, nobody goes, well, we have that show of six white people in New York figuring out who they are. (laughs) Like, we don't need that. Like, no one said that. And so I think maybe the why now is a little bit baked into people are more open to stories that aren't what we've seen before. And I think there's so much content now that people are hungry for something different, like a new point of view, a new perspective. And so maybe that's the why now? I don't know.
1: <laughs> in, in pitching it, can you just tell us briefly a little bit about how it came together? I mean, it feels like a very personal story you're telling. Was it you finding a way in or did it come to you and then, you know, you layered this on top of it?
0: It came to me, my good friend, Melvin Marr and Jake Hasden. we did Fresh Off the Boat together. And he called me up and he was like, great idea. Doogie Hauser, reboot, Asian Girl at the Center. It's good, right? And I was like, yeah, it's great. I was like, that, that sounds great. And he was like, so you'll do it? And I was like, well, why is it called Doogie Hauser? Like, why is this Asian Girl? Like, <laughs> is, do you have Neil Patrick Harris? And they're like, well, you know, like, is it like her daughter? Like, what's the... And he was like, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. And I was like, all right, like, I don't know what to tell you, man. This is crazy. But I did think it was a good idea. And then one day I just had the idea of what if you put the reboot in our world that like Doogie Howser is just a show that existed that we all know about. And that's just her nickname. And she's like, I wasn't even born then. Like, I don't know what that is. And I feel like it sort of frees you. Like sometimes with reboots, you're like saddled with the history of the past 20 years, it's like, well, Johnny, you know, moved to China, like they couldn't get Johnny, you know, or whatever the deal of it all is. And so this way, we're just sort of like off and running. We used to joke in the writers room, like we have a scene early on. It's like, oh, that's her nickname. They just call her Doogie. Like four or five episodes in, somebody was like, should we call her Doogie again to make sure we're like keeping that? And are like, oh yeah, yeah, let's go back and make sure we're like keeping the Doogie of it alive. And it just sort of freed us to you know, write this show that was that why this family and, you know, we're sort of off to the races and we don't have to service, you know, where Uncle John went or whatever, you know, the thing is.
1: Yeah, that's great. And that makes a lot of sense. And and I think there is like you want to be free of that weight of expectation. Speaking of Mig, let's talk about reservation dogs. And I'm curious about the conversations in the room about like, how much weight you have to carry versus how much you're telling the story that you all want to tell. Well, for us,
3: so we've had a couple of really great sort of 800-pound gorillas of shows and creators that came before us. So there actually wasn't a ton of talk about like, man, we're really like, you know, I mean, we sort of understood the responsibility. We understood how special it was and we would talk on it, maybe remark on it once a week, be like, leave it paying us for this. But but generally, we had first, of course, our, you know, one of our EPs Taika Waititi, who, of course, is like smashing down a bunch of doors that has been for the last several years, but also shows like Atlanta and Fresh Off a Boat. And things are like, well, it's not so weird to imagine a world that just like that's just going to be our world. And we're like, oh, then if that's the case, then the, the big thing for us is like where we're at right now is we can just use all of the shorthands that we have amongst ourselves and just throw an audience in. And if they're immersed in it, they're, they're immersed in it. If they go along with it, they go along with it. And if they don't, it's fine. Or, but I think what we have though, is sort of a uh, universality of pop culture. Cause we all grew up, you know, rural people, small town people, res people. We all grew up with, you know, with the limited access that we had, whether it's video stores or, you know, limited cable or the big satellite dish in somebody's yard. We did have a lot of access to pop culture, and so there's a weird. So all of like our kids are sort of representative in that way of like kids who are yearning for something bigger, but don't know exactly how it's made, where you know how to get to it necessarily. That I think is pretty universal. So with that as a basis, we're like, well, that's what we're representing. That's why like our our res is never really specifically named. I mean, it's based on our showrunner. It's based on Sterling's exploits growing up, growing up, and like his you know, particularly Muscogee Creek, like his land. But it has so much of all of the other writers in it that it's like, it's not really, it's not representational of any one thing except for our sort of shared experiences, which is really great in that way. Because like for a long time, I would sort of like in a snarky way be like, you know, what was Spielberg saying about the Jewish experience at Jaws or whatever? Like, nobody asks those questions. They're like, no, you know, nobody's like, yeah. goes, goes after the representational aspects of like other people's stuff. And they do that a lot with Native stuff. So like, our goal was to just be like, you know what, this is like, this is, Days isn't confusing. This is Goonies. This is the stuff that we loved growing up. That's like, this is just a bunch of kids. They happen to be Native. And we have that specific uh, experience to bolster and to guide that. But it's not about like, we're not, you're not going to learn what it means to be native. You're not going to learn what it means to be Creek watching the show. You're just going to be like, oh yeah, this is a fun romp with kids that I recognize maybe from growing up. And that's, so we had a little bit less of that on our backs in terms of, so like for us, the why now, and I think the why now is this, the response has been what it is because I think that we are able to uh, reach across sort of like the, the gulf of culture and experience through pop culture and just through the fact that these are just kids and that's it. So it's a little bit more universal in that way than we have had to be in the past.
0: Can I piggyback on that for a second? I love what you're saying, because I really think there is, I sort of call it like second generation storytelling. Like there's sort of everybody kind of wants, if there's a story about not white people, it's the not white people struggling. Like they're fighting this, they don't fit in. They, you know, like, it's like, they all need to be like Jean Valjean. But it's like, no, they can just be regular people like living their lives. And I think it's exciting that we're like moving away from that they can just be people. It can just be a family. It can just be a group of kids hanging out just like the Stranger Things kids hang out. And it doesn't always. And what's interesting about that in, in making it just these people live their lives, it's actually such a better statement about like they don't have to fight against things. They don't have to like, let's just let them be people you know, and, you know, real families don't talk all the time about like, you know, well, well, you know, you're Korean and you're this, this is our experience. Like families don't have those conversations. And yet oftentimes the TV families do because it is about that. And so that's one of the things I love about your show is that it's just like, yeah, this is just, these are just people doing their thing. It's exciting.
1: John Helpman, let's talk about Only Murders in the Building. And again, like this is such a it's in such an interesting tone. And I think we are living in a golden age of tone. You know, I don't think this is a show that could have been pulled off 10 years ago. So let's start there as far as the why now of this and talk about developing that tone and making it and honing it and sort of getting it right.
2: First of all, I love this so much. Like, is there anything better than listening to great writers like talk about their origin story in the process of the (laughs) stories? I love it so much. Yeah, the first why now involved here for me was Steve Martin had an idea. Dan Fogelman invited me to dinner with Steve Martin to talk about that idea. So the why now is like, you don't say no. And you jump at that.
1: I want to ask more specifically, like, why were you the guy? Why did Fogelman reach out to you? What makes you the right guy to team up on this?
0: Yeah, John, I, what makes you the right
2: guy? Thank you, Corby. Thank you. Am I, am I missing nuance in my question? <laughs> I will, will splay myself out. To the, I don't know why. I, I will just go right there. Don't worry. No, I I think it was a series of a few things, in my own particular writing experience. I only like to work with legends coming off a race of, sure. you know, paired up legends. So that's one thing I've made a real rule about, but um, no, I think it was coming off of that knowing that like, you know, I had the best time on that show and, and Jane and Lily particularly, you know, I knew how to sort of write for both of them and have a relationship that developed work, which was really lovely. And the whole team, the writing team on that was amazing. But in, in that case, it was partly, you know, very pragmatic and how do you present me to Steve and say, here's where he's coming off of. Then the other part was really damn recognizing something that I thought had no place in this story at all, which was a personal experience that I was going through that wasn't funny at all for the last year where I had been like no other time in my life. I had found out that a dear friend of mine from my childhood that I had lost touch with for many years had was found on the floor with another person in a murder-suicide situation. And I, he lived in Wisconsin. I didn't know that. I didn't know the family situation. And for the year before I sat down with Steve and Dan, I had been doing something unlike anything I've ever done before. And I was madly going to Wisconsin to learn what happened and researching in every way and becoming a true crime person around my friend. And ultimately, after that year, the whole situation, which at first looked like my friend had shot someone and killed himself, taking him away from, Two of his kids, which I could not imagine. It actually, after the year's investigation, reversed itself. And my sort of gut feeling about it, sadly, in all ways, was proven correct, though, that he was actually murdered and the other person shot themselves. So it was a terrible tragedy. And I pitched that story to Hulu when I pitched this half-hour comedy with Steve Martin sitting next to me. Just try and be there for that moment. But I will say, as to the why now of it all it infuses things and it actually made us look at true crime stories and why people are interested in those stories and to great credit for everyone involved in the project i was always looking at it like a study of loneliness and connection and how these podcasts and these murder crime stories can bring people together and you know if we could do it with the fun, we always knew it had to have a funny angle so it was going to be a challenge tonally as you're saying but the why now actually kind of came about as we were shooting in the middle of a pandemic and realized you know everyone was afraid to walk out of their doors for fear that their neighbor might <laughs> end up killing them and so there was a, an infusing that that i think and then ultimately when the show came out it was very interesting to me to see people react to a very like words like cozy were used and what we need right now to laugh in this way or connect so um i think the why now just changes you have your own ideas about it at the beginning and then sure the world has other ideas as they embrace it or otherwise but the tone uh of the show i've always just said the tone of the show is new york and like walk Ten blocks in New York, and you're going to laugh hysterically at something. You're going to see some elegant piece of architecture that is beautiful next to some modern thing happening right next to it. You're going to be intrigued or scared by something you see, or like wonder what the hell's going on for a second. And then, like a Broadway show, will be promoting their show in the middle of the street, and all of that's happening in ten blocks for me. And I thought, let's do a show which speaks to New York like that, and Let's see if it can all hold together
1: that's really neat that's that's a fascinating
2: backstory, and it's it's all on the screen too, which is really cool. I just can't believe the miracles that happen to make these shows happen right now it's yeah and and that we sort of can hold the tone, yes, but just in general, everyone is heroic who's making work happen in the last year and a half. I just feel oh absolutely, it's such a huge.
1: And seemingly impossible undertaking. So yeah, congrats to all of you just for getting stuff on screen, let alone letting making it of such a high quality. Let's talk about working in your rooms, working in the writer's rooms in which you are currently or most recently working. And let's talk about Reservation Dogs first and tell us a little bit about how that room works, how story is broken, and sort of for you as, you know, a, a mid-upper level writer, how... What is the expectation of you in the room, both from yourself and from the showrunner?
3: For myself, I just hope to show up and not, you know, be a babbling mess. <laughs> fail, <laughs> I fail every day. No, for the room, it's an interesting, we have an interesting dynamic because um, now, uh, compared to the first season, we've doubled our room size because I think we had to sort of prove ourselves a little bit. We, We, you know, FX has some interesting you know, like sort of like on our first season. Well, the first season, first off happened, the we, the pandemic hit right after the pilot was shot. So the pilot was shot and then we're going to go into production. We're going to start a room and then that did not happen. So they just told Sterling and Taika to like write a couple more episodes <laughs> while well, we wait this out. And when it became clear that we're not going to wait this out, they're like, all right, let's get a room going because we, we can't just have you writing this whole thing. So <laughs> Sterling brought me in. I've been working with Sterling for, I mean, I've known Sterling and Taika for, since two thousand five or six, and we've I've worked with Sterling pretty closely. We started a, a low budget comedy group together, like a native comedy group called the Fourteen Ninety Ones. But with my brother Dallas Goldtooth, who's also now in the writers' room and on the show, he's Spirit, the guy on horseback. That's my little brother Dallas, the little like weedhead, uh, or not yeah. You know, the the guy who owns the dispensary. That's our friend Bobby Wilson, who is also in the trip. and then Ryan Right Redhorn, who I'm sure will be in season two somewhere, is uh, also in our season to writer's room but initially from the 1491s it was myself bobby and Sterling. we have a shorthand we you know not only have we been creating content for online and doing sketches and improv live and stuff for a long time since 2008 or 9 but we've also we wrote a play together as a group called between two knees which shameless plug is going to be at yale rep in May. so have fun with that okay. who knows after that but it was for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. All of this stuff was right pre-pandemic. And then we were like, oh, Shining Star, we're just riding this out. And we're like, oh, no, dead stop. Let's just hang out and sort of recoup for a little bit. Anyway, so the room gets going. And then we have, it's people that have been sort of grinding along, you know, together for a long time. And we've all been, I know mean, we're all like Native creators, Native writers, directors. And we put this room together with this idea of like all of us who know and trust each other, who work together. So the other two that I haven't mentioned are or three that I haven't mentioned that were in the first year. Writer's room is Sidney Freeland, who's a Navajo director. Tyler Chavez, who is a Paiute Navajo writer-director. And our friend Tommy Pico, who is a poet and is now an incredible street screenwriter. <laughs> um, and so we at all, like, we just went in with this idea of, you know what? This is pretty special. They're probably not going to give us another shot. Let's throw everything. At it. Let's throw everything we can at it. And then now, so in season two, we're like, oh, now let's just get weird. So they're with us. And we're like, so in terms of like, let's throw everything we can at it. We're like, oh no, Matt, let's get and see how far they'll actually go with us. Um, but we so but we also, you know, we um have we because we've all been working together in various capacities for so long, it was sort of um we sort of would would go down a path in terms of tone, and then we would just blow it all up and be like, that's not it, it's not the show. And then we would rewrite we so there are episodes, the episode that I'm credited on which is the Finale went through something like five or six different like full-on rewrites during that. Wow. And our room was I want to say six weeks. It was four weeks and then two. <laughs> like, so we, you know, we rocked it, we did what we could, kicked our own asses. And so, like our whole of ethos, the things that we expected of each other and the things I think we expected of ourselves were to be like, We're we're gonna throw all of what we have behind us <laughs> and just You know, we don't have much time. We don't have, you know, we're not going to have the biggest budget. And then when we got to production, when we went to Oklahoma, because Sterling's insane. and wants to do everything Oklahoma. Like, we still didn't have time. I mean, you know, the pandemic hours are 10 hour days. And we, I think we had four days per episode to shoot. (laughs) And it was like, just, it was rock and roll. We just like kept going. And it was like being on tour. And a friend of mine described producing as like having every job you ever wanted, but having it all at once. (laughs) That's probably the most added thing. And so, and then when you're at that breakneck pace, you find yourself throwing like all that you have behind it, but in the best Mm -hmm. way, like when we we also made it a a, a priority to be as familial with ourselves as possible, because we've all, you know, like, so we've been (laughs) working together, like alongside each other, climbing up the same hill for, you know, however long it's been 15, 20 years. And uh, there are reasons why there certain doors were closed in front of us, and we wanted to make sure that all the doors that we like tried to plow through, all the holes that we're making in walls, and like going through that they stayed open for people. And so, as much as we could, we we're just like, come along with us for this like crazy ride. Like it's going to be insane, and and it, we did everything with as sort of like much love and familial feeling as we possibly could. Like the, to have as many people feel like they were a part of the creation of this show, and, you know, creatively, not just physically, but like everybody, like. We wanted to make sure that when we're throwing down, we don't want anyone to feel like they're throwing more than we are. So mm-hmm. we, you know, I think so. That was you know, no small expectations. Just leave it. On <laughs> but,
1: but it comes across, you know, like you, you can feel when a show is put together with that kind of love and that kind of intent. And it has, you know, the best version of making TV is you get that, like, let's put on a show feeling, right? Like, you're just putting on a show in the barn and it's people you like and respect and you're all working towards this thing together, despite the time constraints and the outside pressures and everything else. Like there should be a a fun momentum to that. It's, you know, again, it's on the screen and and that's really impressive. Cordia, let's talk about running Doogie. And I'm curious to hear about, you know, what you've taken from shows you've worked on, great practices for show running that you brought to running this room?
0: Yeah, you know, it's great practice to be on a staff because you see what works in the room and you see what doesn't. And you sort of learn by, through others' mistakes. And for me, you know, I'm a mom, I got three kids. We're doing this in a pandemic. Like, I was like, these are, like, we work 10 to one, we take a break from one to 2.30 and we will never go past five. Like, I got kids, I got like, and, you know, like, let's make this happen. And so the Zoom room is much more intense than, you know, a regular room, but it focuses you. And I do think there's like value in it. Like if somebody goes off and it's just sort of like, you know, telling a disjointed story about something else, you can just see everybody in the boxes. Like, like, we're on, like, we're not, like let's go, buddy, let's go, you know, and so there is benefits to that. I mean, I love the room. And so I miss the camaraderie. I miss, you know, the watching YouTube clips or whatever, you know, what everybody else loves, but there is a certain focus. And so, you know, that's one of the things that was important to me in running the show was like, I'm all about like deadlines. Like, okay, like when do we want to get, it also scared the crap out of me early on because production was like, the sooner production can get the scripts, the safer the crew will be. And so like that, like scared the absolute crap out of me <laughs> of like, like if I'm like late on a script, someone's going to get COVID and like, I, like I, that would kill me. So like we were so like, okay, by this date, we're getting them this script. By this date, like let's lay it all out. And so that was, you know, time management. And the other thing that was interesting about running the show that I learned as you know sometimes it's my inclination to just keep talking like I want to fuel like I want us to get the work done and what I a lesson I learned in this especially on zoom is as a showrunner be quiet like let that silence sit there because then that silence empowers the people who you're speaking to go Oh, this is my chance! Like they need a moment to speak up, and the less you talk, the more they will talk. You know, and especially when it first started, it was my thing to be like, "Well, maybe this," and like people would like take a beat and be like, "Oh, we could do this." Or that, like I was just pitching all of the time, and especially on Zoom, it took me a minute to get comfortable with that silence and like let that silence sit there let people form their thoughts like that gives the room a chance to step up and they want to be a part of this too. And they're taking their cues from you, which is so weird on Zoom. And so Ouch. that was something valuable that I learned that I should probably take with me throughout life is just shut the fuck up. You're <laughs> better off being quiet once in a while.
1: <laughs> it, it is hard though, right? It's learning a whole new interpersonal dynamic. Uh, And yeah, that's, there's a learning curve to that, but clearly you hit on it. Clearly something worked. John, let's talk about the same question, running this show and, you know, what, is this your first show running gig? Yeah. Yeah. So pressure's on. What did you take from positive
2: experiences in past writer's rooms? Absolutely. There was so much, but Courtney just gave me one right now because like tomorrow morning I'm going to shut the fuck up so much happily. Because it, it is true, I, but it is interesting, Courtney, that that is a lesson I've learned too. The Zoom room is fascinating in that way. It, you realize that other writer's rooms you've been in, you know, it feels like you're sitting in a room that's like the internet and it could be anything all the time and, and let's look at this and let's distract ourselves over here and whatever is happening. And the focus that comes from a, a writer's Zoom, to me, it, it's like going from the internet to, oh, we're now on Hollywood Squares and like everyone whose yellow box lights up has something specific to say because they've been hanging in wait in that way of sort of just staring and it is really interesting to watch the process unfold that way for my own experience i it's an odd thing i have a lot of experience but there's nothing that can really prepare you for show running on in some ways but thank god for the experience that i had i had a very experienced pair of showrunners in Marta Kaufman and Howard Morris on Grace and Frankie for six seasons. And then, you know, a lot of responsibility given to me sort of in that process through those seasons ongoing. So it was really a great training ground for me. They were amazing too. You know, it really, when you start into the room, just those things, just that you've sponged up from them, and then pr- previously, Andrew haig was the showrunner on Looking, and he was wildly inexperienced too. But I watched him find his way through it, helped in many ways through it. So it was all very different process. But this one, you know, again, like we knew we wanted this room to be filled with diverse sort of voices in every way, and we had, you know, a mix of New Yorkers. So that was other thing, sort of lovely for the Zoom room needs that we could have people on different coasts working in a writers room together suddenly and so we have novelists we have people who have never been on shows before never written for tv and so we pulled a lot of different people in again i think probably with the needs that the tone of the show have but ultimately you know i think within the writers room itself it it's about, as Courtney's saying, the focus is so critical, and it's really advantageous in the Zoom room world. But it is also that balance between driving the conversation, angling it to the directions you know it needs to go, but also being able to step back. And I love being able to sort of separate rooms out, even in the Zoom room, and mm-hmm. and like let people have their own space away from me. So. Again, that whole shut up, John, is a good bit of advice because great things come from very smart people who you send off and you come visit their room and you pop in and they're all ready to tell you something. And it's brilliant that way. And and you learn to really balance in the sort of sharing of responsibilities, but always sort of necessarily driving in every way and pushing pushing for more constantly is the other thing which drives us all crazy but it you know all of this is hard to do whatever show you're working on i think to fill out how many ever episodes you've been ordered to make and it's such an opportunity so we all feel this like our back goes up and you know no matter what you're just trying to make it the very best because everyone around you is incredible the people we were making this show for particularly it's just like if you're not stepping up at every moment you're you're really making an error leave it all in the field yeah. and like like make a single thing.
0: piggybacking off of that i the thing i learned too is that i used to think a good showrunner comes in and is like here's the episode it's going to be this and this and i have like let's go and what that does is it takes it takes everything away from your writers. Like they want to be a part of that. And so that's not being a good showrunner. Being a, a better showrunner, I learned, is coming in and being like, I just have this moment or like this feeling or like here's something that happened to me and I feel like there's something in that and that excites your writers and it gives them something to pitch on and it becomes something better than what you could have come up with on your own. And there's a little bit of, letting go like you have to let go of controlling it you know and also when you're a showrunner like you're just trying to get the shit done like i want this story broken so we can move on like you're just trying to get it done and you have to let go of that and trust that these people are going to rise to the occasion and what's great is writers are awesome people and nine times out of tech they will you know if you give them the space if you give them the tools they'll do it and it's like nobody wants to be on the show where somebody comes in and goes, Here's the episode, it's this and this. You're like, okay. And then you pitch a joke and they're like, Well, I like my joke. And you're like, All right, well then what the fuck am I doing sitting here? You know? And so it's much better to create that environment.
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Let's talk about momentum and sort of filling these 10, 12 episodes, whatever it is. You know, what I really like about all three of the shows we're talking about, all three of your most recent shows, is a lot happens in an episode, a lot happens in a season. But these shows also have room to breathe. uh, And we get to live with these characters and we get to live in moments. And I want to talk about balancing that stuff and the old television mandate of like, keep people interested, right? Which is just a good storytelling mandate versus getting to sit in these character moments. And so whether it's, you know, on the page or whether it's conversations in the room or things you've been thinking about, I'd love to hear just about managing that from anyone who wants to jump in.
3: So for us, it's funny, I wanted to, because this also has to do, we're just, piggybacking off of what Courtney was talking about there we have a episode episode I think it's now six I think it was seven initially but episode six which is just a hunting episode between our characters Willie Jack and Leon like father and daughter just father and daughter in the woods walking around just two-hander and um Sterling had no idea I think exactly what he wanted to do but he's like I want to get to that I want to earn that moment I want to earn getting there and that was about it and then he's like and then we'll, you know we'll, and then that will plunge just sort of headlong into the finale, whether however it is emotional and or as as much plot or emotion as we want to get in there. But he's like, that was the sort of, I know that was the thing that he'd always had in his mind. So for us, it was, I think there was a point where we realized, well, God, we got to keep the gang all together. You know, like we have to like, you know, it's going to be this group show. And then we had one <laughs> part of it came out of, I mean, a part of our structure came out of the fact that like, oh, one of our actors, Lake Factory, plays cheese is 16 and we were like we just can't keep him for as long as we want him <laughs> which, which was a bummer and we're like all right well what are we going to do here so we'll, well he'll be broken off and have his own adventure while the other three are doing this thing so the other three go off and do uncle brownie and we're like well what's lane gonna be doing by himself well he'll be doing a ride along with big and that but that sort of now that allowed us in the weirdest way that sort of that cascaded into like now we can do standalone episodes in the way we want and again not to throw it out too much I and mean, we didn't Think this hard of it, but like, you know, you have time in retrospect to talk about But like, shows like Atlanta have, you just take off with a character and just go hang out. And that was interesting to us because we were like, well, if we are going to say we're leaving it all upfield, then if we really want to, we don't want this to be about plot. This isn't about the kids trying to like actually get to California. We're going to see these kids' lives and the characters, who they are, what they, what drives them. And we're like, then we can just do whatever we want. And we're just going to like focus, like laser focus on each of these kids as much as we can and we're going to we're going to see get in there and what makes it tick at least on one level one you know one layer and that was sort of that became like okay well then how do when we learn these things about these kids wh- when it comes time to we we force them their backs up against the wall and it's time to like lead to californians to actually say like do what they're going to do and that just became the question and so the structure came out of that it's like Here's their, here's their thing. We'll just, you know, their inciting role, their idea is to get out. Why do they want to get out? Who are they? Like, and then that was it. But it all sort of stemmed from this idea of like, well, when their against gets wall, like what, and, and they actually have to do what they set, what they've set out to do, how, how are they going to respond and why? And that was it outside of like structure. And we're just like, oh, we can spend time with this stuff mm-hmm. off on our own. And we didn't have, we didn't, then we weren't saddled with the plot device. Of like right. trying to leave it was just a thing in the background everybody knows what this kid it was like the easiest thing and so for us structurally it was just like oh now we can just we could spend time in these little pockets around the resin. and what's great about and what people have noticed the in the responses is like oh we can do this on a wider scale we could see more of the community and it's just going to get bigger and bigger now and yeah. which i'm really excited about but yeah for us it was we never I mean, everybody's familiar with traditional structure, but we were just like, let's not mess around with that. Let's just like, let's just focus on these people in the way that we would that in the way that we would think about it, the the way that we would tell stories just to each other. So yeah,
1: yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and and it works. John, you're working with a mystery, so. You have to have, you have to drive us along, right? There have to be reveals. There have to be twists and turns. Can you talk about balancing that with the
2: character stuff? Yeah, it's like the worst comedy to write ever because of the mystery, because you really have to satisfy these true crime nuts who are watching the show and you need to make a proper mystery of it. And so, you know, God love our room because we sit and we know we have to start from episode 10 backwards and know everything before we even start laying down episode one um and and you twist yourself backwards from what we all agree is the proper way to end it it's, it's quite a task i will say that as every room is uh, this one has been like wow this is a hell of a half hour comedy task but the big help there structurally is the podcast form Uh, And that was one of the things that I brought in when I first sat down with Steve and he had this idea about these three true crime aficionados in New York in an apartment building who investigate this murder in their building. And I knew I wanted the show to be sort of if you knew you had Steve and Marty. And I thought this is a show that wants to have the classic meets the modern. And so that was right there in the casting with Selena opposite these two guys and so there's the classic meets the modern and we had to completely do that throughout the whole show and one of the ways in which i thought was a way that helped organize it was to look at the podcast world and actually have them making their own podcast as it goes along while investigating which helps on the comedy end and also helps on the organizing it so then each episode sort of does the shift and you know the through podcasting sort of format, there there is a shift of each episode. A perspective for the last episode that just aired was through a sort of access point of the POV of a deaf character, and um, you know, kind of putting a sum in the eye of our podcasting structure we made an episode which was entirely visual and had one line of audible dialogue. in it, So not a podcasting thing, but on the other hand, the perspective was podcasting, but on the other hand, the moments you're talking about with the characters, you know, that's the beauty of an ongoing TV series. And, and it's also underneath it all with New York. So that I think of, you know, those moments that blank make my heart saying a lot when, I think of the show when we take the time to be with the characters and not have to worry for a moment about the mystery that has to drive throughout the entire season. But there's a moment like an episode four, this very sweet thing we were able to get between concertina played by Steve Martin and a bassoon played by Amy Ryan, both of them living in this building that sort of they're playing out their window to each other. And, and it's a good two and a half minute sequence, I think, all in, where we stop the show and have this back and forth between these instruments playing over a courtyard in an apartment building in New York. And things like that feel like so necessary and indulgent all at once. But they're the things that stick out in my memory of the things, again, that are underneath the sort of main themes of the connection needs to happen you know in our very more and more isolating world um, well it, so
1: you, you you have to earn it too right like you you earned those two that two and a half minute gap because of the two and a half three hours that came before that you know you earned the no spoken dialogue episode because of the six episodes seven episodes that came before it we were we trusted you as storytellers oh. and i think that goes a long way Courtney, you know, the same question about balancing, like, the big story, the episode, episodic stories, telling family stories in, you know, sort of a well-trod, like, we've all seen family sitcoms, right? So how are you keeping these to stories that only Doogie can tell?
0: Right. You know, it it was a big question that we kept getting in the beginning. Like, is this a comedy or a drama? Is this for like kids or? We don't care anymore. You know, yes. It's like there was and I kept being like, well, you know, it's sort of like a dramedy. Like we have the, you know, hospital staff, we have the family stuff. And it was very key to sort of keep it all under one umbrella. I will say I think one of the things that's been very freeing in doing this for Disney Plus, which is there's no commercial breaks. And, you know, I came up doing, you know, How I Met Your Mother and Fresh Off the Boat. And I think one of the reasons why streaming shows, I think, feel so much fresher is that we're not beholden to, you know, four commercial breaks. And if you are in that structure, you inherently, you know, you want to go out on a really funny joke or you want to go out on an act breaking moment. And chances are your story doesn't have four earned act break Moments and so it feels a little flat, and I think it's one of the real challenges of doing stuff for network that it locks folks. It's hard to make that feel fresh when you have to break the story in that way. And so, for us, it was very freeing to you know shake loose of that. And it was funny because I still break stories, like, I need act breaks, even though they're not act breaks, but like it helps me, and so. It, it 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 has been great because you, you know, like these guys have been saying, it breaks away from formula. You can do one episode where everybody's together. You can do one episode that sort of shapes things up and does it a little bit differently. And that's been really exciting for us as writers. You know, sometimes we're more focused on the medical stuff. Sometimes we're, you know, dad's doing this or whatever, that you don't just have to tell this one. There's not like one play you're running 300 times. You get to do something different.
1: Yeah, I think that's great and I think like we are finally in a time when breaking formula is not just accepted but expected and it's exciting and you know like send it send your weird scripts out now is the time. <laughs> oh no. Let's wrap up as we always do by asking what you are watching on television these days? What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your friends, your room, your family, your uh, loved ones? Mig, let's start with you. What are you watching
3: right now? Squid Game and Great British Baking Show and Only Murders. <laughs> That's yeah, not saying out too hard. You know, these are these are the best shows we have right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> the most. Of the- and, uh, yeah, I um, I it's funny because for men, start of the pandemic was a very different time, and I got real, real deep into like the trashiest. You know, sorry for sorry for the people that are listening and working out here that are working on you know 90 Day Fiance and stuff. That's trash, and I was watching the hell out of it. And now I've gotten to, like, I don't need to, like, subject my brain to the to the horrid, horrid ways of these shows. Now I can have something later, which is <laughs> which is great British fake show. And then that way I can watch all the dark stuff I want to. Elsewhere. Absolutely. But, yeah.
1: I feel like I heard 90 Day Fiance as the answer to this question for the past year and a half. Oh, my God. And you're right. I'd like It's print. only yeah. now that people are sort of crawling out of...
3: I think people were like, "Well, the world's going to end. I might as well like this." Is it's that person that was found in Pompeii that just was like masturbating as the volcano looked down. I think that's what everybody was doing with ninety days. Yeah, You're
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh John, what are you watching these days? Oh, I'm watching. Well, I'm tr- I'm working on season two, so my TV life is so sad right now. But I'm finishing up. I'm uh, finishing up nine perfect strangers. I'm just starting reservation dogs, which is thrilling. And what's yeah? I'm about to start also the Great British Bacon Show as well because that's just my like background chill <laughs> that I need. But yeah, no, there's too much now, which is good. It's there's too much to catch up on, and I'm like, okay, I've got to meter this out. at, at <laughs> Whatever I land on, it
1: right. Uh, still good, Rex Courtney. What are you watching?
0: Well, I always divide my watching. There's the things I watch with my husband, and then there's the things I watch on my own. So there's two bins. And so my husband and I are rewatching Succession to get ready for the <laughs> launch of season three. And I got to yeah. tell you, the rewatch is even more delightful. Like there's little things you miss and knowing where it's going. Like it's been a delight to do. The rewatch, and then let let
1: me interrupt right here for one sec because this is something I've been thinking about. So my wife and I had just finished uh, a rewatch of Succession, also, and it had been like it had been like you know since it was on, so over a year and a half since we watched it. And having watched Ted Lasso in between, made watching Succession feel so mean. (laughs) 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 Like it was hard to readjust to that Succession voice, and once you're in, like it's so great, but. Oh, boy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see that. So that's what I'm doing with him. And then yeah. I'm doing the nerdiest thing ever. I'm going through and rewatching the DGA's list of the 80est, 80 best directed films of all time. Wow. Um, wow. That's I- so sp- I came up as a playwright and I took like film classes. And, like I've seen these, but always with like, oh, Citizen like whatever. Like it was, you know what I mean? Like I did just sort of come to them with like a a a mature, I came to them with like a 21 year old who was like trying to get to the bar yeah. by nine for the, you know, or like before like that guy came out to IB, you know, like I was doing that while I was watching Citizen Kane. So my interests were elsewhere. So I've been re-watching them and my husband makes fun of me because just yesterday I was like, I came to him and I was like, oh my God, I'm like Casablanca is so good. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I am really have my finger on the pulse of uh, pop culture in, in this moment, but it's, 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 really, uh, it's been really fun to go back through them. And there's some that I'm still like, I don't know about this. You know, but I get it. I appreciate the whatever. But (laughs) it's a lot of me talking about movies from the 30s to my husband who's just like went to like SC film school and is like, yeah, I know, babe. Casablanca's great. (laughs) But but that is
1: great. I would love to hear about a couple of the others that you feel like translate to modern audience. Cause I think Casablanca is really watchable. Like it's it's funny, it's dramatic, like it's a it top to bottom. And I think you know, a lot of folks avoid it because it is lumped into this classic film list. What are some of the others that you found that like you were either surprised by or were just a joy to watch?
0: It's funny. Lawrence of Arabia, I like loved and was like, oh, this is fun. And then like I kept it, it felt like homework too. Like I <laughs> thought it was great. I've never seen I it. I appreciated it. But like every time I'd be like, all right, <laughs> and like i know it's like it's like people out there are like this girl knows nothing what she's talking about i know people love it and i can i get it it's like, I, it's, it's, I get it but just like at the end of the day are you going home and switching on lords of a ring <laughs>
2: can i just add too, to this that like just because courtney made me feel more like she related to me in some way at the beginning of this conversation that made me feel completely comfortable but i will say this like in in that way of like going back to things and and revisiting i spent during the first season of writing this show um you know it was pandemic time but every night i watched like our my casablanca for tv i watched two episodes a night until i watched the entire seven seasons of the mary tyler moore show which had dropped on guru awesome and It was, first of all, like a real balm for me at night just to like calm down in the midst of this insanity that was happening while I'm doing my first show uh, with these people involved. But then it was, and I hope you can, but like the humanity in that show and the watching it grow from a kind of a mess at the beginning, which was also reassuring to see it get to be amazing and get to know the characters and understand like a tone of humor. You know, I still think, you know, Martin Short has a lot of Ted Knight going on in in our show. And I think there's ways in which those things just seep in. And that's so smart, I think, to look backwards, too, and not just sit in what's happening now, but to recognize, like, wow, you know, what is it that you can pick up and and, um, steal? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, I think, too, it just sort of helps, like, as writers, sometimes we're so stuck in... It all has to be conveyed in dialogue. And more and more, especially with streaming shows, it's how can you more economically tell your story visually and it'll make it more interesting, you know? And I think if writers think more about the visual, because it's sort of, it's moving away. Like it used to be TV was like radio plays, you know, like sitcoms, cheers. You just sit there and it's all about your word and it's not all about our words anymore. And so it's like, we have to figure out Are there ways so we can still be in control and in charge? But you know what I mean? Like we still have to run the stuff. Like, let's not let go of that, but let's get better at the visual stuff.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, another argument for rewatching or visiting stuff that is older. I mean, this happened just last night for me. Like I've seen Get Out a dozen times, but we watched it last night and it helped me contextualize a story problem I was having. And they're, they're like, I saw something in a different way in both my story and in Get Out. And I think there's like, there's good stuff in that. Go back to the stuff that works, you know? I'm constantly Go amazed. <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm Go Yeah, I do. And I'm just genuinely constantly amazed by myself how I will forget the most basic parts of storytelling. Yeah. And when you watch something, you're like, oh my God, I start the room the next day saying, guess what, guys? I don't know what the main character wants in this episode. <laughs> yeah, plain- literally. Duh. Let's ask that question first.
1: Anyway. That is so so true. I feel like we could go on. So I hope all of you will come back and visit us again sometime for no reason at all. Just come hang out. I don't care if you have something to plug. This has been a joy. Thank you so much. Uh good luck with all the stuff and hope to talk to you all soon. Thanks. We did so it. So nice. Thank
3: you guys. Forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production.